from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. It was the fourth grade, and it struck me when we uh, went to the majority white middle school that they had the best buildings, the best facilities, the best books, the best of everything. And so, you know, they bust us from South Lumberton across the tracks to uh, North Lumberton with the new uh, white school. And I remember distinctly being in uh, the lunch line with uh, my other neighbors from the projects there in Lumberton. Uh, and we, again, we were nine years old, fourth grade, and uh, we are waiting in the long line for the free lunch. Based on your parents' income, you were given free lunch, and so that's what we had to eat every day. Uh, well, this young white girl came over with one of our uh, friends who was a black girl in our neighborhood, and you had the option, if you had the money, you could get, eat a la carte. You could get all the food that children really wanted, hamburgers, milkshakes, pizza, you know, all that stuff. Uh, or you had to stay in the free line and get whatever the superintendent deemed was appropriate. Benjamin Crump, civil rights attorney. Crump gained national prominence by representing clients in some of the most important and contentious high-profile cases for African Americans. His passion for advocacy has given him the privilege to fight for justice on behalf of the marginalized in our society. The oldest of nine children, Crump, at an early age, was aware of the inequality between the races as racial integration in his hometown came slowly. He was inspired by the late Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall to become an attorney. Crump was the first African-American president of the Federal Bar Association for the Northern District of Florida, the first African-American chairman of the Florida State University College of Law Board of Directors, and in 2015, he became the 73rd president of the National Bar Association. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, noted civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump in Black America. Well, I think we have to stand up for our children, we have to speak up for our children, and we have to fight for our children. And if we don't do it, we can't expect anybody else to do it for our children. I mean, these are our children, this is our future, and we have to tell people and demonstrate to them with our actions and not just our words that their lives matter. To watch Martin Lee Anderson kill, murdered, how he was, and you can go back and look at the video. I mean, these are eight grown men who are choking and kicking and punching and suffocating a 14-year-old kid. And if you won't stand up for that, what would you stand up for? And so it's those cases that shock the conscience that, I know it's going to be more than just a case. It's going to become a cause that I am attracted to. Civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump has become a household name in the African-American community. In 2012, he first came to national prominence by representing the family of Trayvon Martin, the unarmed African-American 17-year-old that was fatally shot by a neighborhood watch volunteer. Since then, Crump has represented the family of Alicia Thomas, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and Corey Jones. Born in Lumberton, North Carolina, Crump grew up in an extended family and was raised by his grandmother. He moved to Florida to attend high school. 
1992, he earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Florida State University and his law degree in 1995 from Florida State University College of Law. Crump believes in fighting to preserve the advances in justice and equality that people of color achieved during the Civil Rights Movement. On that note, the day this interview was scheduled, Crump had just got off the phone with the family of Anthony Wall, who was manhandled by a police officer at a Waffle House in Warsaw, North Carolina. I'm good. I am uh, stopped here and went into a hotel, and so they were kind enough to let me be here to do our 15-minute interview. Okay. I'm just reading about the recent incident at the Waffle House. Did they call you? Yes, because, uh, you know, we're representing Keisha Clemens, and that happened from a matter that started at the Waffle House. And so what I'm trying to look at is there a pattern here based on discrimination where they called the police on uh, African-Americans and the police then violate their civil and human rights based on what we see on these horrible videos. Is this Warsaw, North Carolina, close to where you grew up? I don't think so. I think it, I'm not sure. Uh, it may be closer to Charlotte. When I say closer to Charlotte, Charlotte is about an hour and 45 minutes from Lumberton. So Warsaw is somewhere between Lumberton and Charlotte. Having been involved in these type of incidents and, and in the litany of, of incidents, what do you see going on today? I think that it is an extension from what is happening at the highest levels of our national leadership. I think that when you have rhetoric coming from the president about certain people from African countries and Haiti, when you have uh, rhetoric coming from the White House that, you know, there were good people amongst white supremacists who were preaching hatred and intolerance. When you have leadership at the highest level within the Department of Justice saying that they're not going to protect people's constitutional rights to voting and they're not going to protect people's civil rights from being abused by police departments, no matter how objective the abuse is and it's clearly demonstrated then I think that's what's going on in America. It has emboldened people to act on their worst uh, denominators amongst us, whether that be uh, implicit biases, prejudices, discrimination, or uh, just outright ignorance. What was it about the law that initially attracted your attention when you were in the fifth grade? Well, actually... It was the fourth grade. Fourth grade, okay. Yes, sir. And it it struck me when we uh, went to the majority white middle school that they had the best buildings, the best facilities, the best books, the best of everything. And so, you know, they bust us from South Lumberton across the tracks to North Lumberton with the new white school. And... I remember distinctly being in uh, the lunch line with uh, my other neighbors from the projects there in Lumberton. And we, again, was nine years old, fourth grade. And uh, we're waiting in the long line for the free lunch. Based on your parents' income, you were given free lunch. And so that's what we had to eat every day. Uh, well, this young white girl came over with one of our 
friends who was a black girl in our neighborhood, and you had the option, if you had the money, you could get, eat a la carte. You could get all the food that children really wanted, hamburgers, milkshakes, pizza, you know, all that stuff. Or you had to stay in the free line and get whatever the superintendent deemed was appropriate. Well, this young white girl pulled out a $100 bill, and she said to us that we didn't have to wait in that long line. She would get us all lunch. And we was just startled that this little fourth grader would have a $100 bill. I remember thinking my mother, who worked two jobs, would have to work all week to get $100. And But here this little fourth grade white girl had it, and she said it was her allowance and that she could do whatever she wanted with it. And to prove to us that she really could, she bought us lunch. And so as I was riding home on the school bus that day, uh, back across the tracks to South Lomerton, you know, I kept thinking why people on one side of the tracks had it so good and people on my side of the tracks had it so challenging. And so I remember my mother and my teacher telling me the reason we got to go to the new school with the fancy books and facilities and technology was because of Brown versus the Board of Education case and Thurgood Marshall. And I said, right then, I'm going to be like Thurgood Marshall because I wanted to make things better for people who look like me, people in my community. And from that day to this one, that's what I've been uh, working to do. I understand. Long before Trayvon Martin in 2012, you were also doing this in 2006 and before, but particularly Martin Lee Anderson. Why was it important and still is important that you address these issues with the families involved? Well, I think we have to stand up for our children. We have to speak up for our children, and we have to fight for our children. And if we don't do it, we can't expect anybody else to do it for our children. I mean, these are our children. This is our future. And we have to tell people and demonstrate to them with our actions and not just our words that their lives matter. To watch Martin Lee Anderson kill, murdered, how he was, and you can go back and look at the video. I mean, these are eight grown men who are choking and kicking and punching and suffocating a 14-year-old kid. And if you won't stand up for that, what would you stand up for? And so it's those cases that shock the conscience that I know is going to be more than just a case. It's going to become a cause that I am attracted to. Like, the, you know, Trayvon, before anybody started talking about it, before it became the number one news story in the world, I was really troubled that a, nine, a neighborhood watch volunteer had a nine-millimeter gun and shot an unarmed black kid and with, who had skills and a can of iced tea, and they said that he doesn't go to jail. You know, that was troubling to me. Uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, you know, when his mother called and he laid out there for all those hours mm -hmm. in the hot sun with the whole neighborhood watching his humanity now being murdered after they've murdered him, that shocked my conscience. Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old in Cleveland, Ohio, I plan on the playground by himself in less than two seconds. The police make a decision to fire him at will and take his life. Terrence Crutcher in Oklahoma City walking away with his hands up, you know, in the air. That was troubling to me why the white policewoman was shooting him, even though she had two other police officers there and a helicopter overhead. 
you know, Stephon Clark being shot at 20 times in his grandmother's backyard, all these things shot the conscience. And I, I think based on God's blessings with the education and the law degree and the platform that, you know, it's like Dr. Martin Luther King said, we as moral people have an obligation to oppose injustice when we see it. I always like to tell people very clearly, neutrality in the face of injustice is in and of itself an injustice. Because if you say, I'm not going to get involved, I'm not going to take a side, well, you just took a side by not doing anything. Mr. Crump, I find it interesting, uh, far be it that, you know, I am no way against a police officer or anti-police, but I find it interesting, one particular thread or statement, once these incidents happen, the officers say they were in fear of their life. My question is, if you become a police officer, there should be a certain level of confidence in your ability to not be fearful of the people you're supposed to serve and protect. Yeah, and that's troubling on so many levels when you think about it because uh, the, various, the very highest institutions in our land have condoned this mentality. I mean, the United States Supreme Court in Graham v. Connor and Tennessee Gardner says, you know, as long as the police say these three-letter magic words, no matter how unreasonable it is, how they uh, murder us, all they got to say is, I felt in fear, I felt threatened. And then they say, oh, you can't Monday morning quarterback the police and all this craziness. Well, how about the police who are given such a great ability as to use deadly force? I mean, that's an awesome power you give somebody mm -hmm. to legally take a life. How about you put standards on them that if they are, if they abuse those standards or they abuse this great power, that they be held accountable so there'll be some deterrent to them continually abusing their power and killing black and brown people. And I, I agree with you saying I'm in fear. Well, hold on. You're supposed to be a trained professional. You have been trained to deal with life or death situations. Why did you use the most lethal force versus the most, uh, the most uh, reasonable force? For instance, with all these young white men who have been confirmed mass murderers, whether it's the Parkland school where he shot and killed the 17 children, uh, they took him alive, whether it's the Austin, Texas situation where he bombed multiple homes, taking multiple lives, they followed him and took him alive. And we can't forget Dylan Roof, the white supremacist who went into a church and uh, South Carolina killed nine of the most innocent people you could ever find. In fact, he in the later interviews, he said he felt bad about killing them because they were so nice to him. Well, not only did they not take him alive, but they took him to Burger King to get a burger and fries. And so we just can't understand how you keep taking these confirmed mass murderers alive, but yet when it's uh, – Stephon Clark with a cell phone, Terrence Crutcher with his hands up, uh, Laquan McDonald in Chicago running away from you. You know, all these instances over and over again where you keep killing unarmed black men and you say you uh, had to use the most lethal force, but yet with these young white men, you never use lethal force. 
And really, to bring this point home is what I'm working on now with Shakisha Clemens, this young, unarmed black woman. And, I mean, when you think about it, the Waffle House mass murderer in Tennessee mm-hmm. was uh, detained with more respect and more consideration than this young, unarmed black woman. And don't take my word for it. I want everybody to go look at the video of Shakisha Clemens and look at how they assaulted her just for her asking for the corporate phone number to complain about her and her friends being discriminated against. I mean, they assaulted her. These three police officers slammed her to the ground. They threatened to break her arm. They literally choked her, not the chokehold, but put a hand to throat. They disrobed her, exposing her breasts. I mean, they violated her civil and human rights grossly. And yet, People are trying to say that's appropriate when it comes to uh, interaction by three police officers with a young, unarmed black woman. Malcolm X talked about how the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. And if they are allowed to get away with that, then Malcolm X's words are still true today. And so that's why we got to stand up for our black women and send a message to Waffle House that if they don't respect our black women, then they shouldn't expect our black dollars. And we want everybody to go sign the petition on change.org slash justice for CC. That is change.org slash justice for CC. We got to send a message loud and clear. Mr. Crump, you recently participated in the 2018 State of Black America Town Hall with, by the National Urban League. What was your message to the audience? My message to the audience was very uh, simple. Until all of us are free, none of us are free, number one. And number two, I don't just, you know, with the midterm elections, people are praying that the Democrats take over so we can have uh, uh, better conditions and easier times. Uh, But I don't pray for that. I told them I, I pray for us to have younger, stronger people of color, uh, especially younger, stronger black people. So no matter what may come in the future, we will overcome it. And that is my prayer. Being the eldest of nine children, was there added responsibilities you had in the home while growing up? Absolutely, still do. Mr. Crump, when you go around the country addressing these issues, is there a common thread that is spoken to you from these families? It certainly is. It is this sense of complete devastation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never forget the call of Tracy Martin, Trayvon's father, on the phone. His his sound of despair, of heartbrokenness. I mean, you can't even really describe how he was trying to explain to me what happened to his 17-year-old son. I mean, it's almost like he's whining. And um, that's in Gina Jones with Martin Lee Anderson in 2006. That's with uh, Michael Brown in 2013 in Ferguson. Uh, I mean, it's just the common theme is that how did this happen to my child? And the saddest thing is that we all got to stand up for them 
because but by the grace of God, it didn't happen to your child. And with the way things are going in America, I'm sad to say there are going to be other parents of children of color that are going to be joining that fraternity that nobody wants to be a part of uh, being a parent of a child who was killed by the people who are supposed to protect and serve them. Mr. Crump, you recently hosted a documentary television series on TV One called Evidence of Innocence. How did you all come up with that project, and what did you learn from that experience? It was an important project, and I'm so thankful to TV One and executive producer Rashawn McDonald and Jupiter Entertainment to allow me to use my influence to get a message to the masses about equal justice and due process of the law. Evidence of Innocence is like a forensic file type show about wrongfully incarcerated individuals who have been exonerated by clear and convincing evidence and DNA evidence. Uh, it starts on June 4th at 10 p.m. every Monday night, and it's a real important television program that everybody needs to watch, not just black people, but people who care about Morals and ethics and justice need to watch it because these are people, as the Innocence Project statistics suggest, of amongst the 100,000 people sitting in American prisons who are completely innocent. I mean, completely innocent. And unfortunately, most of them are black people, especially black men, who um you know, as I tell people when I speak around the country, the easiest thing in the world to do in the American criminal justice system is to convict the black and brown person of a crime. I mean, society already suggests that all black people are criminals and up to no good. So when you're up in the jury, it becomes easy case for the prosecutors. And so with this television show, my hope is that people will have it affect their hearts and minds so when they are a potential juror one day, they'll be in that jury room and they just won't take the police word and the prosecutor word as the gospel and then discount or discredit the little minority people who are poor as being liars or untrue and make sure they get their full constitutional rights that before you take away their liberty and send them to prison, that they have to be convicted guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, in these cases, you see that the prosecutors were misleading people, were outright lying in some instances, and the fact that these people spent 10, 20, 30 years in prison for malicious prosecution, and they're doing this to our brothers and sisters, and the message is twofold. Number one, this could happen to you or your loved ones. And number two, when you watch this story, it's different from all these other legal criminal reenactment shows uh, that's technical. This is an inspirational show because the people who American society tried to define as the worst amongst society when you see how they fought and never lost their faith, and when they came out of being locked away in a cage for a crime they didn't do, they weren't spiteful and vengeful and bitter. They were all about trying to get back to their life and make a difference in their family and their communities. 
And it turned out they were actually the best that society had to offer. And so that's what's so special about this television program. Two more questions, Mr. Crump. Two decades later, they have yet to solve the murder of Christopher Wallace, Biggie Small, or Tupac. Why is that important that these particular incidents come to justice? Well, I I was fortunate enough to host a six-part television series on A&E called Who Killed Tupac? Mm-hmm. And uh, in that case, where I did it again, I try to only do things where I, I use my influence to talk to larger societal issues. Tupac was one of the most successful, well-respected, most famous celebrities, hip-hop artists of his time. But when they killed him in Las Vegas, in 1996, in the aftermath of a Mike Tyson fight, he was treated like a lot of other young black men and men of color in America who don't get due process of the law, who don't get a fair investigation, who don't get fair prosecution. Um, and so it was important to send that message because even though it was a very entertaining show, it was a very informative show teaching people about their rights and talking about uh, equal justice and equal access to the courts and uh, due process of the law. And so I think every time we get an opportunity, we got to share with our society, especially young people, why it's so important to understand the system. Right now, you know, our grandfathers and grandmothers fought Jim Crow. Jim Crow. We're fighting Jim Crow Jr., and he's more sophisticated. And we got to make sure our children are more intelligent than those who will seek to oppress them. Mr. Crump, final question. What as we as society need to do to turn the tide on, on, on this, and I call it assault against young African-Americans, male and female? Well, I think what we have to do is do like the young people in Sacramento, California are doing. They continue to show up at those city council meetings and uh, disturb the peace and say, we won't go on with business as no, usual because if we go on with business as usual, that means you all keep killing us. So we're going to make us be on the agenda every week, every uh, day. You all are going to have to think about until you do something to achieve justice for Stephon Clark and Terrence Crutcher and Alta Sterling and Philando Castillo, uh, you know, Corey Jones in Florida. Until you do these things, we're going to continue to make ourselves on the agenda. We're going to continue to tell people like Waffle House, you won't get our business unless you respect our black women. I mean, we just got to do something, take a stand. And everybody has a role to play. I don't expect everybody to be on the front line with me and uh, the young people from Black Lives Matter, but we all have a role to play. And whether you're in a corporate setting or uh, you can encourage mentorship and mentorship. You can also write letters to the editor and letters to the mayor to say, I'm disturbed about the police officer shooting a black boy in the back. I'm disturbed about the number of convictions that our prosecutor do disproportionately in the black community versus other communities. We all could do something because, as Martin Luther King said, more people have an obligation to oppose injustice when we see it. Benjamin Crump, civil rights attorney. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to your future in Black America programs, 
Email us at nblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm John L. Hansen, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.